No, it's not. I, oh, Iraq? Well, yeah, let's start with that hug. Sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure I want to hang on to this. No? No. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome. My name's Pat, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't prepare for this uh, speech or this talk and uh, I said some prayers and that's all I do with anything I do in 12-step recovery is I say a prayer I don't, uh, I don't say rosaries and I don't go to church 50 times I say a prayer and, and, and it usually happens pretty good um, I, uh, I'm also an adult child of an alcoholic and uh, I've, I felt inadequate all my life and I, I really uh, that was apparent tonight uh, listening to Richard he, he had an excellent talk he's, uh, he's worked on his stuff he knows his program uh, you know so all the time I listen to him I'm just thinking Holy shit, I feel inadequate, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally inadequate. And uh, I know I'm at AA meetings and I listen to so many people talk and I think, God, I wish I could talk like them. And, uh, and the present sponsor I've had now for seven years, I'd just give anything to be able to talk like him. And, uh, but I can't. I can just talk like me. So, <laughs> so uh, here we go. <laughs> uh, my my daddy died an alcoholic, and uh, and uh, he never ever admitted he was an alcoholic, and. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, there's been talk today about uh, grandpa and uncles, and like they they say, you shake a family tree, and at least one drunk will fall out of it. Like you can shake our family tree on either side, and and there won't be any drunk, there won't be any sober people fall out. You know, and if they were sober, they were really sick spouses. You know. Like they, we've heard about that in the adult children and uh, Al-Anons, and like they all they all had this disease. And uh, you know, I've I have I have all them effects also. I'm an adult child. I'm a spouse of an alcoholic. I'm a child of an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, what else is there? Uh, uh, yeah, down in California, they've got Alatot for for the little toddlers. They got Alatot. I could have gone to Alatot. You know, <laughs> Alawat. <laughs> you know? What else is there? You know. But uh, anyway, all I did was uh, I, I experienced my first high on alcohol when I was four years old, and I can remember that day as clearly as I got out of bed this morning. I got high on alcohol, and uh, <coughs> mom and dad were there, and the family, and grandpa. And they thought I was just the funniest guy in the room. And uh, I, I was stepping up into this trailer, and I 
I went right back, flat on my back, and everybody just came to the door and oh, what's the matter with that? You know, and, well, I was drunk. <coughs> and then they thought that was all funny, and I got into the living room, and they were just laughing at me like crazy, and I was just really enjoying it. I was getting all this attention. And so I remembered that. And, uh, and every time I drank after that, and it was often, you know, a little boy. Like, like by the time I was six, me and my older brother were making wine together. You know, we'd steal fruit off my... Why are you laughing? You're recognizing this, aren't you? <laughs> anyway, we'd, we'd steal a jar of, uh, you know, canned berries. And about a week or two later, we'd steal another jar. And eventually we'd get four jars. That makes a gallon. Get some yeast. <coughs> cook off a gallon of wine, yeah. That's when I was six and he was 11. And we were constantly stealing booze from Dad and, you know, getting drunk every chance we, get, we could. And every family do was, a, was a, a bash. So we stole booze and, you know. Anyway, uh, had all these adult child issues and, uh, you know, child and alcoholic issues and just the insanity in that home was just like, it was just like it was a 24-hour day, seven days a week insanity. Uh, they talked about that spouse. I can remember when I was like four or five years old. I'd see mom and I'd think, mom, keep your goddamn mouth shut. I'd think that, you know. Dad would be out drunk and he'd come home and he wanted to pass out. And she wouldn't stop nattering at him until he blew. And then once he blew, we lived in hell for the next 15 hours. You know, and I'd think, why did she keep her mouth shut? But she had disease. She, actually, I asked her a couple of years ago, why did you do that? Well, I don't know. She said, that's what my mom did. <laughs> that's what her mom did. Yeah, so, so where else do we learn, eh? <laughs> Yeah, and it is. It's just a bloody big joke if you live through it. Lots of people don't. Lots of people don't. Anyway, uh, anyway, growing up in that home, I, uh, I, uh, I didn't trust anybody. I, I didn't trust anybody. Uh, one, one time I expressed some anger at my father and... Uh, and he gave me a left hand across the face. He said, you ever talk to me like that again, I'll knock you. He used a bunch of foreign language in there, and he said, head off. I'm going to knock my effing head off. Holy man. Oh, he knocks my head off. I'm going to be dead. You know, so I, not, I walked around on eggshells for the next 13 years not, not to piss this guy off. He's going to knock my head off. <coughs> You know, so you walk around on eggshells trying not to scare or get this guy mad. And, uh, you know, watch, watch that mom doing all this crazy stuff. I've been, I've been trying to remember the last couple of weeks when I quit trusting my mom, but it was very young. I didn't trust her either. I didn't trust dad and I didn't trust mom. And my siblings, you know, the craziness that mom and dad were doing wasn't getting dealt with, so the, the kids were doing it. You know, and uh, I didn't trust my only sister, and I didn't trust most of my brothers. There was only one brother I, I grew some trust in, and he abused me severely. 
you know, but it was like it was like it was like the only person in that crazy home to hang on to was that one brother. And uh, yeah, he abused me in many ways. I didn't find that out till years later. And uh, one way, he got me smoking cigarettes when I was six years old. And now I'm 50 and I'm still smoking. You know, and I've quit 25 times since. I've quit about 20 times in the last 25 years, but I'm still smoking today. Uh, you know, and about a couple of weeks after him and his friend got me smoking at age six, the older boy was like about 13 or 14. He took me out in the bush and sexually abused me. You know, that laid the blueprint for my sexuality for the rest of my life, basically. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, it was just on and on. Crazy shit. Crazy people, you know, doing crazy things to little kids and just crazy results. The crazy results were uh, when I was 10. I heard I heard quite a few people talk about age 10. A lot of stuff happens at people, little boys or girls at age 10. And uh, at age 10... Uh, this, this only brother in that family of eight people, that only brother that I, I felt like I could trust and I could hang on to and be with, he told me to get lost one day. Just get lost, like piss off your little runt. He was going with older boys by that time. He was 15, I was 10, and he was going with 18-year-old boys, and they were going to go in the convertible and chase girls, and they didn't want me along. I was just a little runt. And uh, oh man, I went into a I went into a really negative spot, and I didn't know I didn't find out until I was like 45 years old. But I wanted to die that day. I really wanted to die. And instead of dying, uh, the disease of alcoholism took full control of me. Now, I was living to drink after that, and uh, my life got really crazy. And uh, I was living to drink. Ten years old. A lot of people. Uh, I, I've run into lots of AA members that didn't didn't get high on alcohol until they were 18. Well, I got high when I was four, and and alcoholism took full control of me when I was 10. I was living to drink after I was 10. <coughs> so uh, so my drinking thing got really crazy. Lots of shit happened. Uh, I was convinced. I was convinced I was going to be dead before I was 20. I told myself I'm going to be dead before I'm 20. And I went from a, I went from a 94 average in school, and uh, in the summer of uh, 1960, I think it was, I told myself I was going to be dead before I was 20. And that next year, I didn't pass an exam. And, and I, I just failed and failed and failed after that, because I, I didn't think I was going to be, I, I wasn't going to live. I was going to be dead before I was 20, so why, why apply myself to anything, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, living to drink. Uh, by the time I was uh, 13, I was bombed drunk at least twice a week. Uh, by the time I was 15, I was bombed drunk three or four times a week. When I joined the workforce, I was bombed drunk seven days a week. I lived to drink, and I was going to do her good because I only had a few years left to live. I'm going to party, I'm going to 
rip her up because I'm not going to be here long. Well, shit, here, here it is now 60 years later and I'm still here. <laughs> well, not quite, but... <laughs> anyway, it's been hard to create a, a life and a future and a, uh, a package and, uh, you know, all that stuff because I thought I was dying all the time, so... So nothing ever got accumulated. Anyway, uh, yeah, I had a very, very crazy life. And, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you start smoking, when you're this big, like they don't come to you every week with your allowance and say, here's, here's tobacco. They say, uh, no, here's your allowance. Well, that's not enough to buy tobacco, so you learn to steal. And so I, I learned to be a thief. And uh, as, as, the, as the, the addiction to smoke grew and the addiction to drink more booze grew, I learned to become a better thief. Yeah. And uh, so by the time I got to be 17 and I had to be drunk every day to cope with this crazy life I was living and smoke two or three packs of cigarettes, I had to steal lots. I had to work lots. I found out you could work and get paid money and you could buy all this stuff. So I, uh, by the time I joined the workforce, I got into a trade, but I still couldn't make enough money to drink the way I needed to drink. So I got a part-time job and worked 12, 14, 16, sometimes 18 hours a day. So I could afford to drink the way I wanted to drink or needed to drink. And, uh, and found that I still didn't have enough didn't have enough money, so I, uh, you know, I stole from my uh, my niece's piggy bank. I stole from my brother-in-law's business. You know, it's just like nothing meant nothing. I had a drink, you know. God, it makes it, it made me sick years later to, to look at all this, but that's what I had to do. <coughs> I guess very self-centered. I didn't think about nobody other than me. And avoid everything, I guess. Anyway, uh, uh, that uh, that age twenty kind of came along, and holy shit, I wasn't dead yet. I was. I thought I was going to live a little longer, but not much longer. Because uh, the pain was welling up in me, I carried that pain around all the time, and, and uh, my life was totally insane. Uh, I, was, I was definitely afraid to go to a doctor. I didn't go to a doctor till I was 32 years old, and I went through lots of disease and didn't deal with it. And uh, anyway. Uh, I can remember one morning I woke up. I woke up in a puddle of puke. I think I heard some puddles of puke talk around here today. But uh, I woke up in a puddle of puke on my kitchen floor, my age 19, and I I, I can't take any more of this. And uh, I was living in Edmonton, and uh, I looked up in the Edmonton phone book for a for a clinic. See if I could go to a clinic and talk to a doctor and you know get some help of some kind. It was just like I was drunk every day. I was sick of it. And uh, so I found a clinic, 
and it looked like it was near where I lived, so I jumped in the car and went over there, and the damn door was locked. They were closed on Saturdays. So 13 years later, I went to another clinic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is just a big joke, really. That's what it all is. You know that I'm standing here still alive, sane, sober, and straight. It, it is, uh, it's a miracle, and it's a joke, and uh, whatever. But I'll tell you, there's lots of places in, in that time where I could have killed myself or, or somebody else or, uh, you know, lots of low, low places. Anyway, uh, yeah, I got into drugs when I was 19, and then I was drunk and stoned. And, uh, and for the alcoholic, you can get pretty messed up on booze, but add a little drug to it, I'll tell you, it's like 10 times crazier. And uh, I've run into lots of people that, lots of guys my age that, that turned on to that same drug scene, but then they, they found that if they mixed the two, everything got too crazy, so they quit one. And most of them quit, quit alcohol. They, they enjoyed the experience of the drug or the pot or whatever but not me, I did it all had it, did it all and overdid it all and uh, everything just got magnified and uh, and etc uh, etc et <coughs> anyway uh, you know I'm, uh, I'm positive I'm dying I'm in big business I'm signing on the dotted line you know, I signed my name on lots of dotted lines, always thinking, well, I'm dying anyway. Uh, you know, it don't matter. <laughs> yeah, 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 hundreds of thousands of dollars signed here, you know. <laughs> somebody, will get, somebody will benefit by it, you know. And, uh, man, I got into lots of jackpots. And, uh, you know, I just, I didn't have a clue about nothing in life. I was just like... Uh, a brother was going that way, so I'd go that way. Or, you know, somebody was doing this, well, I'd do that. You know, like it's just like I didn't have a brain of my own. I just, I just, I was a follower, I guess. And I, I, I walked into lots of traps, and <laughs> you know, got set up for lots of things that I paid for for many years. And, but anyway, through all that pain and anguish and suffering. Uh, it brought out this guy. This is what I ended up, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with who I am today. And I had lots of lots of fun along the way. Met this beautiful young man. Met my beautiful sponsor. Got to know my mother all over again in a different way. Uh, so it's been good. <coughs> uh, I'm really glad I didn't write anything down. <laughs> I'm relying on God. Where are you now? <laughs> oh, there it is! <laughs> yeah, where is he, eh? <laughs> oh! I owe everybody in here an amend. I realized that. That wasn't Santa Claus I saw out there. <laughs> I'm Santa Claus. Yeah, I lied to you. What's that? 
If I wouldn't have met her, I'd have been dead a long time ago. So uh, for the first time in my life, I had a desire to live. And a couple months after I started dating her, I met her father. And uh, and after meeting him, I thought, if I was ever to grow old, God, I'd like to be like him. Just He was just a beautiful man, eh? And, uh, yeah, so... So... Uh, I'm still that guy that can't make a decision and don't know what to do, so I just, whatever somebody says, okay, I'll do that, you know. But anyway, uh, I dated this girl for like about seven or eight months. And uh, one day I was in my jewelers getting all my diamonds washed and shined up and my chains and all that. And he says to me, uh, you're still dating that... Uh, Whatever her last name was. I, want, I, don't, I don't want to break her anonymity here. <laughs> anyway, uh, you still dating that girl? And I said, yeah. Yeah. You know, he said, Todd, she, she, you, you should ask her to marry you. She'd be a good woman for you. He says, I live right across the street from her parents. They're good people. And I said, yeah, I met the, I met the, the old guy. He seemed like a really nice guy. And, oh, yeah, they're good. And they're, they don't drink. And they're... You know, Lutherans, and they go to church. And... <clears throat> anyway, I walked out of his jewelry store with all these clean diamonds and chains, and I had another one in a box. $20 down and a $750 engagement ring. So I went home and smoked the joint. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sitting there looking at this $750 diamond, and... Holy shit, I could see my whole yard in the top of it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I thought, hey, I only got another uh, year to live. I'm going to ask this girl to marry me. Set her up. Because prior to that, I had my father as my beneficiary. Like every time I signed on that dotted line, my dad was my beneficiary. And I hated his guts. I hated my father's guts all my life. I hated him with a passion. Like I couldn't stand to touch the guy. I hated him so much. But anyway, I had him as my beneficiary. So I thought, hey, I'm going to ask her to marry me. When I die, I'll set her up. At that point, the government and Farm Start and a whole bunch of other lending agencies had me believing that I was worth like about $350,000. In reality, it was only about 110, but they had me all pumped up, financed up. and Anyway, uh, yeah, so, wow, that's a plan. That's a good plan, eh? <laughs> Is that a good adult child plan? There we go. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I, I went and asked that girl to marry me, and she consented immediately. She thought I was a really neat guy. I had a beard down to here and hair down to there, and... I was, uh, you know, drank once in a while. And <clears throat> anyway, uh, she consented and she said, I'll plan it all. You just show up that day and that's all that matters. So uh, that was in February. We were to get married in October. And in July, two months before that wedding, God came to me in a dream. Uh, I had a dream. I had a dream that I died on the altar. So I woke up the next morning. Oh, like I actually dreamt that I died on the altar where we were, when we were getting married. So I went back to my girlfriend. I said, "Hey, we've got to call this off. Like, 
Like I couldn't tell her why. Like nobody, I was 28 years old and nobody in the world knew that I was dying except me. <coughs> and I wasn't going to tell nobody either. But anyway, uh, I had to call that wedding off because I, I had this dream and I couldn't tell anybody I had the dream. But anyway, she uh, she was uh, an adult child of, what did you say there? Anyway, she said, well, come on. It's all planned. There's people coming from all over the States and Canada for this wedding. like, uh, And they're planning their holidays around and everything. So uh, she said, let's get married. And if it don't work out, we'll get divorced in six months. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. God, this guy keeps nodding me. <laughs> Anyway, uh, anyway, so we went through with this marriage, and uh, the guy that we went to see, will you marry us? And he said, no. <laughs> well, why, you know? And well, he says, I know you, and I know her, and I know your family, and I know her family. It can't work. It can't work. <laughs> and he had been the pastor in, in my community where my alcoholic family lived for 15 years, and he baptized my, my, my wife when she was born. So he knew their family, he knew our family. He said, it can't work. Anyway, we told him if he didn't marry us, we'll go elsewhere. No, no, okay, I'll marry you. But he said, it can't work. So uh, I think we set out to prove to him that it could work. So we, we stayed together for like 11 years. And it could end the day it began. It could end the day before it began. And I'm glad it lasted as long as it did, though. As crazy as it all was, uh, we did have lots of joy and lots of fun and lots of pain and sorrow. It ended up, and uh, we brought a couple of beautiful boys into the world, uh, both of them in my sobriety. And uh, <coughs> there I go jumping around a little bit, but uh, you know, uh, after I after I met and married this woman, three years, I uh, I went on this one drunk. And uh, this drunk, this drunk amounted to a, uh, a Texas Mickey. I think pretty well alcoholics know what a Texas Mickey is. And I drank one of those the last night that I drank. I drank equivalent to a Texas Mickey. I had a major capacity for lots of alcohol. And, and my brothers did. And I'm sure there's some alcoholics in the room that have that same capacity. There's, there's one guy right there. Yeah, you, my, my brother used to drink a half of 40 put her down, and a few minutes later, he'd drink the other half. And I, I could never do that. I had to put a couple ounces of Pepsi in it to just give it a little bit of sweetness, you know, and then I'd do her, you know. Yeah, 10, 12 ounces an hour in a bar. 12, 10, 12 hours. It's 100 and some ounces, you know. Anyway, uh, that last night, I drank over 130 ounces of hard liquor. The last place I was... The guy was apologizing. He didn't have any more liquor to feed me. <laughs> but he had some Colombian. That's high-grade marijuana. So we smoked that. And uh, it was about 10 after 6 in the morning, September 17, 1981. And uh, I had all I could take. I, I didn't want any more. And I went outside. That's how my heart was going. Can you hear that? That's how my heart was going. And I went outside and I, I got this thought like, 
my God, that heart's going to jump out of my chest. And I put my arms like this. I closed my eyes. It was a beautiful autumn day, September 17th day. Beautiful day. And I closed my eyes and I started crying. I said, God, I can't take any more of this. Like, I, I lived in that goddamn pain since I was a kid. Drinking that shit until I ate and drank it until I puked and drank it until I hit the ditch and, you know, just nothing but insanity. So, uh, yeah, I can't take any more of this. And, uh, man, like I didn't have to say the rosary. I didn't have to go to church for a whole bunch of times. I just said, God, I can't take any more of this. And uh, a couple hours later, I was in the psych ward. And that sounds like a frightening thing, but it wasn't. It was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. And uh, I ended up with a student psychiatrist. And what would a student know? Well, she knew how to sit in front of me and encourage me to talk about how I felt. And how did I feel when I was this big? And I cried and I talked. And the more I talked, the more I cried. And she just... Oh, I know God, God put her there for me that day because I talked and cried for two and a half hours. And when I was done talking and crying, she stood up and she said, Well, Pat, I'm going to go to my office and I'm going to assess what you told me and I'll, I'll come back. And, and she closed the door and I sat there. And, you know, two and a half hours earlier, I felt like I was, I was going insane. And I felt like I was going insane for many years before that. I felt like I was dying. And after talking to her, I felt like totally reborn. I was reborn. I felt as good then as I feel right now. I was reborn. Holy God. Yeah, holy God. And uh, so she gave me a, a, a card to Larson House and she said, you go there. No, she told me that she came back. She said she came to the conclusion that I was a chronic alcoholic and a drug addict. She gave me this card to, to Larson House. She said, you go there and you do what they tell you. And you'll detox for probably six or seven days. And then you'll go to a place called Calder. And that's three weeks stay. And you do what they tell you. And then you go to Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, in a year or two from now, you'll never have to drink alcohol again as long as you live. And I thought, okay, I'll do whatever they say. I'll do whatever they say. Because I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just I lived in a puddle of puke all my life. And, you know, grew up in it and lived in it and wanted nothing more to do with any of it. So I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't do everything they said. I fought it all. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I hated the guy that was chairing my first AA meeting. I hated his guts. <laughs> and, uh, and after a short while, I hated pretty well everybody in the room. <laughs> I'm a hater. I'm a hater. <laughs> but I stayed sober. I stayed sober, and uh, in some ways it got better, and in lots of ways it didn't. Not many people changed in my world. I quit drinking. I started working those steps. I did everything I could to change me, but nobody around me did anything to change. The woman I was married to, 
uh, I phoned her from detox. I said, I'm in a detox center. What? What? She argued with me for half an hour on a collect call. <laughs> what? She couldn't believe I was in an alcoholism treatment center. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Now it's 25 years later, and she still can't believe that I was in an alcoholism treatment center. Wow, eh? Figure that one out. Yeah, what a, what a fabulous disease this is, I'm telling you. Anyway, uh, so I went to AA and didn't do anything they told me to do. Made up all my own rules. <coughs> and I really liked what uh, Richard said about God. Uh, I, I wasn't an atheist, but I didn't like anybody else's God. I just wanted nothing to do with anybody else's God. And uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it took me 20 years to find God as I understand God. And it was the same God I had when I was this big. Same God. And I still don't know where He is. And I don't care. But I know He's always there. Because I've been going over cliffs. And I've been going over this way and that way. And tens of thousands of times I've reached out for Him. And He's there just like that. Yeah, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to pray, you don't have to say rosaries. Just reach out and he's right there. How am I doing, God? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Anyway... Yeah, so I uh, found some sobriety. Just loved, I loved, I loved sobriety. I loved, I loved AA pretty much. I had lots of problems with lots of people in AA, but uh, I went there, I had lots of fun with lots of people. And uh, and the woman I was married to wanted nothing to do with it. Not a thing to do with it. She wanted nothing to do with the AA. She, did, she didn't want to have anything to do with my friends. She definitely wanted nothing to do with Al-Anon. She wanted nothing to do with roundups. So I'd go off on my own. And uh, when I was about three and a half years sober, I went to a, an AA roundup in Kindersley. And I met a, an Al-Anon girl dance. I, I had a dance with an Al-Anon girl. And uh, she was married to a guy that was drunk at home that night. And I was married to a woman that was didn't want to be there and she was at home so me and this little honey had a dance Jesus Christ it felt good so good that it's amazing I went home that night you know <coughs> but I loved my wife I wanted it I wanted my marriage to work so badly I had two little boys two little boys I just loved I just wanted them to to grow up in a sober home you know and uh And my wife wanted nothing to do with it. So, uh, so I lived in that. That was a pretty crazy, crazy place too. You know, I was sober. She wanted nothing to do with AAL, non, anything to do with any, uh, anything. And trying to rear the boys in that, and uh, and that went on for uh, eight years. Eight years, and uh, I, I tried to change her. You know, and. Uh, 
There was lots of change, and it was all in me, and I ended up in the psych ward shortly after the marriage ended. Yeah, I had a nervous breakdown. And uh, to this day, she hasn't changed. Not a morsel. So uh, it's amazing. <coughs> but anyway, uh, the marriage did end. And uh, and that was like, I don't know, what was that? That was uh, 17 years ago. And I've never really been to the woman since. And uh, not that I went the other way. <laughs> no, I, 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 was, I found out ten years later I was still in love with my wife ten years after she was married to another man. I was still in love with her. Yeah, I wanted that to work so badly. And my boys, you know, my boys grew up. Uh, their stepfathers are drunk. You know, and, and, and after... After ten years, I could finally see my wife was an alcoholic. I know I haven't broken anonymity, so nobody knows who I'm talking about here. But uh, she was an alcoholic. Yeah, well, not like I was, but like she is. So my sons grew up in that swill pail. My sober, my sons were conceived, and my sobriety grew up in with two alcoholic parents. And now the one is stoned 24 hours a day and the other one's stoned half the, half the time, you know. <coughs> but the guy that conceived them is still sober. So, uh, and they're attracted to me and yet they're, they're shy at times, but we get together and do our dad and son things every once in a while in Saskatoon. And who knows what'll happen, but uh, I... I've really learned lots about, uh, you know, letting go, accepting, uh, loving as they are. Yeah, what a, what a thing to learn. What a thing to learn. Uh, I learned to love my father. But it took, it took me till I was 35 years old, and he was two months before he died. Uh, he, had a, he had a pretty major stroke. And uh, I was told, don't bother coming because he's, he's going to be dead in a few hours. And, and I was 18 hours away, and I said, I don't give a shit if he's dead or not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my final amends to this guy. Even if I make it to his corpse or anything, I'm going to get to his bed, and I'm going to make my final amends to him. And I got there, and he was still alive. And my mom said, oh, you shouldn't have bothered coming. He's brain dead. And my brother said the same thing. There were three of my brothers, and they said, he's brain dead. They, you don't understand a word you said. Well, I sat down and I, I hung on to the side that wasn't paralyzed. And he understood every word I said. I could feel the energy. I could feel the, 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 the emotion, uh, everything. Every word I said, he understood. And when I walked away from there, I thought, oh, no, he can die or I, I can die and we're free. And uh, two months later, I, I, I was visiting with my family and we had already left, and I know that God spoke to me, and he said, go back and give your dad a kiss. So I bent over, <coughs> I gave my dad a kiss on the cheek, and I told him I loved him. Holy shit, he came off the bed, and I came off the bed. <laughs> yeah, it was a spiritual experience. It was. That's who God was. God was there. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize it at the time, but I forgave my father that day. I forgave my father. 
<coughs> yeah. And also I realized how sick a man I was. My dad wasn't my dad didn't have a bad bone in his body. He was just a really sick man. Yeah, he suffered from alcoholism and depression and he was treated like a piece of snot. And I met lots of people after my dad died that, that knew his dad, my grandfather, and my dad was treated like a little runt. He was he was grandpa's little runt. And that's what grandpa would introduce him. He said, This is Fern, my little runt. My, my dad was lame. He walked all his life like this, eh? Yeah, he was lame, and so he was introduced as his, as his dad's little runt. So, yeah, he had a few complexes, all right. But anyway, uh, anyway, as we trudged our road to happy destiny, we kept plowing along in that thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I don't know, I think I ruffled lots of feathers in that program. Are we still at AA now? Yeah, okay. <laughs> We've been talking about so many recovery groups here tonight, I wasn't track. <laughs> How's my sponsor doing down there? <laughs> oh, there you are. Right on. Oh, God, I love my sponsor sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I tried laying him off. Uh, a few months ago, and uh, oh, I had to come crawling back. <laughs> I had to come crawling back a couple months later, and uh, there's nobody on this planet that understands me like he. So he's an essential ingredient to my well-being today. Anyway, uh, I don't know how long I'm supposed to talk, or but I am coming close to my end. Uh, I, uh, I'm a severe adult child of an alcoholic, codependent. I want to please everybody to hell with me, you know. And, uh, I managed to stay sober one day at a time. September 17th of 2006, I celebrated 25 years of sobriety. Hey! For about, for about six months before that, I was going to put on a big party. I'm a good cook, and so I, I, I put a deposit on a deep fryer. I was, going to, I was going to get some good northern fish. and I was going to make like deep fried fish and chips, and I was going to make like all kinds of homemade cream pies and get some uh, cream from the Hutterites. And, and I had a whole week's holiday around this 25-year sobriety, and I was going to invite like about 125 AA friends and uh, and have this big party, big celebration. <laughs> and as the day grew near, I thought, "Holy Christ!" You know, like I could see like four days, four or five days of work preparing for this. And then I'll invite 125 alcoholics, and 60 of them or 16 might show up. <laughs> you know, it's happened before. And I thought, you know, then I'm going to be left with 150 pounds of fish. <laughs> No, no. I decided I decided I'm going to do something just for me. I decided to cancel that idea. I'm not going to do that. <coughs> I want to do something just for me. And you know, I'm 56 years old, and the only gift I've ever really gone out and bought a gift for me, I bought myself a pierced earring when I was 53 years old. That was the first real present that I bought for myself. So I thought, I want a present just for me. 
It'll be something special just for me. Christ, I spent two weeks and I couldn't think of one thing. I couldn't think of something that would be good just for me. So, uh, I think God was working there. I was reading, I was reading my, uh, uh, my August edition of the Grapevine. I've subscribed to that pretty well ever since I sobered up. And I just finished reading it. And I, to this moment, I can't remember what triggered it. I'm going to go to Akron, Ohio. That's going to be my gift to me. I'm going to go to Akron, Ohio for my holiday. And uh, so, oh, then this fear overwhelmed me. Like, how am I going to do this? Like, I don't know how to do any of that, you know? And uh, so I thought, hey, well, I know people, they they phone a, a travel agency. So I looked up travel agencies in the phone. Like, I've never done like anything like this in my life. So I phoned this travel agency. This is like on a Tuesday. And she said, yeah, 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 we can, yeah, we'll serve you. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to you on Friday, she said. Friday? Like, <laughs> I want to go today. I want to know today. <laughs> anyway, so I hung that line up. And uh, then uh, I phoned another one. I thought, I'll give another one a try. And she said, well, I can get back to you in 24 hours. And I hung up and I thought, 24 hours is too long. <laughs> I want to go now. Can I go now? You know. So then I thought, well, what, what does the travel agency do? They'd phone the, they'd phone the uh, airport and find out what tickets cost. And they'd phone the car rental and see what it cost to rent a car. And they'd phone a hotel and see what it cost to rent a hotel. And then they'd stick three or $400 onto the bill and they'd give me that price. So I thought, to hell with them all. I'm going to phone the... I'm going to phone the Saskatoon Airport and see what they say. Shit, there's a direct flight. Or not a direct flight, but there's a flight leaving Saskatoon in the morning and you end up in Akron in the afternoon. I found out the price didn't sound like too much. I said, book it. So, and then I said, well, uh, you know, how can I get a car or a hotel? Oh, we have those through us. You can get discount places. So from them, I got 2,800 numbers and I got myself a motel and a car rental. And I, rent, I went to Akron, Ohio for my 25th year of sobriety. And what a great gift. Oh, I tell you, every alcoholic that's sober in Alcoholics Anonymous should go to Akron, Ohio. It is one spiritual experience. And, uh, you know, I'd read about this and seen a picture of that and uh, over 25 years. And then you go there and you, you see it all. It's all real. And, uh, you know, we don't, I don't see uh, any pictures of them here or their names, but Bill and Bob, they shared. I was in the room where Bill and Bob shared for five or six hours, moments after they met. And that's where this thing came from, was that room. Yeah, I sat in that room and I just, I just felt like Bill and Bob were there with me, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I touched I touched the light the light fixture. I thought maybe they touched that when they went out of the room. They probably did. Uh, where Bill Wilson slept in Doctor Bob's home, I went into that room and I I got down on my knees and I prayed. I was so grateful, so grateful. I found this thing, and you know my cousin found it, and her dad found it, and 
my two brothers and my sister, my good friend, you know, millions of people. And then the spin-offs, it was just like there's millions and millions and millions of people that found 12-step recovery because of Bill and Bob. We don't hear enough of them like uh, two greatest guys on this planet next to God. Maybe that's where God is. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They say that God's inside us all, so. Anyway. Uh, yeah, that was a spiritual experience going down there. And I knelt on Dr. Bob's grave and I cried again. And... Uh, I'm a Catholic, and I've had lots of problems with the Catholic Church and nuns and priests and etc. etc. And uh, one of the last places I went to was uh, where Dr. Bob and Sister Ignatia worked. And any time over 25 years of recovery, I always steered way totally away from all that nunny stuff, you know, and Catholic Church and Catholic hospitals. And anyway, it was quite an accident. Well, hard to say. Anyway, I ended up I ended up in the rectory of the hospital. Not the rectory, what do they call that? The, the chapel. I ended up in the chapel of the hospital where Dr. Bob and Sister Ignatia worked. And yeah, I, had, I found God. He was in there. And he was on the wall and he was in some prayers I read. And, and I came away from there with a totally different outlook on uh, Catholicism and churches, and uh, nuns, and priests, and everything. Yeah, so I had quite a spiritual experience in there. So, uh, it, thank God it didn't all have to happen in the first year or two of sobriety. <laughs> it took me like 25 years, and uh, and there's lots of things still happening. You know, I learned lots from this uh, adult children today, this Richard, like... Uh, God, I, I hope one day I can speak like you and know that stuff. And maybe I'll never do it. I don't know. I, I got about a grade five reading level, bit, but uh, anyway, this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. yeah. See you. Uh, see you Christmas uh, morning. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Thank you.